Well, good morning again, ZPC. Thank you to our uh, worship team for leading us and uh, Betsy Rawlings. This is her first time up here, I think, leading us. So thank you very much, Betsy, for serving us in that way. And um, we, I knew that this was going to be, this is always an odd Sunday, it feels to me. I mean, the whole week just kind of building up to it, knowing that everyone's packing and leaving and that, uh, that we're not. And um, uh, I knew that this was a little bit of an odd Sunday. It's also because we're kind of in between in our True North series, in between the second part and the, the third part, if you will. We'll start next week. And, uh, and also, it's, you know, next week is Palm Sunday, and then Maundy Thursday, Good Friday, Easter. And so this is just kind of an odd uh, Sunday in so many ways. But you guys are here, so we've got to do something. Just kidding. Well, I mean, we do have to do something. And so as I was thinking about what should we talk about today, I, I decided to look around and see what the lectionary uh, has in store today. Now, we don't really do the lectionary uh, here at this church very often, um, but that's kind of assigned readings that many traditions will do, and it's a three-year cycle. And so I looked up uh, today, and it was okay. It was a story of Lazarus uh, being raised from the dead, which would have been fine. But then I decided to look at what was, I can't remember if it was next year or last year, and when I saw the passage... Something kind of jumped up at me, and I decided that this would be the passage that we would talk about today. And, and so, in many ways, this is kind of a, a reflection more than a sermon um, on this particular passage, and maybe even a reflection on some things that I've been thinking about over the last several months. And so, with that, let us take a look at this passage for today, which comes to us from the Gospel of John. Chapter 12, verses 20 through 33. John writes, Now among those who went up to worship at the festival were some Greeks. And they came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and said to him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Then Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Very truly, I tell you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains just a single grain. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Those who love their life lose it, and those who hate their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Whoever serves me must follow me, and where I am, there will my servant be also. Whoever serves me, the Father will honor. Now my soul is troubled. And what should I say? Father, save me from this hour? No. It is for this reason that I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. The crowd standing there heard it and said that it was thunder. Others said, an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered, This voice has come for your sake, not for mine. Now is the judgment of this world. Now the ruler of this world will be driven out. And when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to indicate the kind of death that he was to die. Sisters and brothers in Christ, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God, and let's pray. God, we thank you on this day, the fifth Sunday 
of Lent as we get closer and closer to Palm Sunday, to Good Friday, and then to Easter. That you would be with us this morning. That we would not move too quickly, but that we would rest in this passage today and ask, God, what would you have to say to us? I pray, Lord, that the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts will be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen and amen. In some ways, it's kind of hard to know when you just jump into a passage like this what exactly is happening. John 12 comes towards the end of Jesus' ministry. He's, uh, Passover is coming. He knows that his time is drawing nigh. And at this point in Jesus' ministry is when John decides to tell us this somewhat odd story. There were, apparently, at Passover, there were some Greeks who were there, and they wanted to see Jesus. Not a, something all too surprising, really. And so they went and they asked Philip, one of Jesus' disciples, can we see Jesus? And Philip, rather than just going to Jesus and asking, Philip then, what does he do? He goes over to Andrew, and he, and he says to Andrew, hey, we have some people who want to see Jesus. These Greeks want to see Jesus. And so then Philip and Andrew go together to Jesus to tell them what the Greeks want them to do. It's kind of odd, A, that John would go into all of this detail, and, and B, it almost feels like two siblings. Uh, whenever you know you have to approach a parent because you've done something wrong, or you've broken something, or you have a, a major request to ask, that you join up together in order to go and ask this question. And so they go to Jesus together, and they say, hey, Jesus, there are some Greeks who wants to see you? Who's not hungry for some Greek's pizza right now? Amen? Now, there are easy responses to this question, right? I think probably three responses. One would be, okay, I'd love to see them. Two would be, no, I don't think so. I'm not really in the mood or in the place to see them right now. And three is, well, maybe let me think about that. But Jesus doesn't do any of those things, does he? In fact, the response of Jesus in some ways almost allows it to, to make sense that Philip and Andrew were kind of nervous to go up and ask him this question. Because what does Jesus say? Let me respond, or let me say it again. Philip and Andrew go up and they say, hey, there are some Greeks that want to see you. And Jesus says, the hour has come. For the Son of Man to be glorified, very truly I tell you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains just a single grain. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Those who love their life will lose it, and those who hate their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Whoever serves me must follow me, and where I am, there will my servant be also. Whoever serves me, the Father will honor. What? I mean, can't you imagine if Philip and Andrew them just looking at themselves and saying, well, was that a yes? Was that a no? 
we knew we shouldn't have asked him this question. It's very, very odd. It seems like Jesus perhaps didn't answer their question at all. Of course, one of the things to keep in mind when it comes to the Greek culture, and we don't actually know, of course, these particular Greeks, but in the Greek culture, as it's been pointed out, they were a people who loved to ask deep questions. They loved to ask philosophical questions, theological questions. They were very well known for moving from one deep thought to another, from one philosophy to another, from one religion even to another. It wasn't surprising at all that they wanted to see Jesus. In other words, of course, that they wanted to try to understand what exactly was this religious man espousing. David Lowe says that the Greeks of long ago were what we would call today people who were spiritual but not religious. They were people who loved to kind of think through things, but they weren't quite ready to commit to anything. And what Jesus perhaps is saying is that if you really want to see Jesus, if you really want to understand Jesus, that you have to be willing to wrestle with death. That if you really want to understand Jesus, you have to be willing to wrestle with death. Death is something that I've been thinking about quite a bit over the last several months. When you preach at three different sermons, at three different funerals for people 41 years or younger, it will do that to you. It forces you to pause and to wonder and to reflect and to wrestle. Truth be told, our society doesn't do a very good job of dealing with death. We don't really like wrestling with it all that much. It's too sad. It's too depressing. It's too uncomfortable. As a pastor, I see many folks trying to deal with those who are wrestling with death, and it's hard to know even what to say. Sometimes I see people, and when it comes to the issue of death, they just avoid it. They ignore it all together. Others try to come over, and they try to gloss things over. Hey, it's going to be okay. Hey, you'll get better. Hey, everything's going to work out. And, and others, of course, will simply say, well, you know, he or she is they're in a better place. I get it. And truth be told, of course, those things, at least some of them, at least one of them, is true. I mean, we believe as Christians, for those who have received the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that in a sense, of course, they are in a better place. And yet, I have to be honest with you, there are many times when I hear those words and it makes me wonder whether or not they're just really trying to be honest or actually what they're trying to do is to avoid really wrestling with the pain and the struggle of suffering and death. That's the reason why, actually, this particular passage leapt out to me this week. It's because of something that Jesus says, here's Jesus, the Son of God, 
Right? We believe that as Christians. The Son of God, a part of the triune God. Here is Jesus. And what does he say? As the shadows of death begin to darken around him as he grows in his understanding of what he is going to have to do, he says, my soul is troubled. The message puts it, I am storm-tossed. I am being tossed by storms. Dale Bruner simply translates it, I am depressed. The almighty God who has calmed the storms upon the sea, who has healed the sick and the dying, who was born of the Virgin Mary, Jesus, God himself, is vulnerable and struggling He's beginning to see already the toll that death is going to take on him. In fact, the death has already begun to take a toll on him. It's a bit like we see him in the Garden of Gethsemane when he is crying, when he is sweating blood, if you will, when he asks God, do I, can, can you take this cup from me? Can somebody else deal with this? It is too much, too much pain, too much hurt, too much suffering. And yes, I know that at the Garden of Gethsemane, eventually he says, okay, I will take the cup. Yes, I know in our passage today, he says, no, I will continue forward. But before we get to that place, perhaps we need to be willing to stop and to meet Jesus where he is right here in the midst of his pain and his wrestling and his grief. On Wednesday, we met together as a staff before they all went away. Thank you, Don, Betsy, Tim. And we talked about this passage, as we oftentimes will do together before a previous, before this next Sunday's message. And, and then we talked about death some, and it was a remarkable it's a remarkable conversation. In fact, I, I would encourage you. I, I realize this is not the most uplifting of subjects, but I don't care. It, it's an important one. And I would encourage you, actually, to, to, to be willing to, to perhaps talk a little bit about death. Because it was a fascinating conversation. Things that came up that I wouldn't have expected to come up. And in the midst of that, Scott, um, Scott said, you know, one of the things I've noticed, Jerry, in these funeral sermons, especially the ones uh, th for, for those who were so much younger, is that you spend a fair amount of time in the sermon talking about the pain and the struggle and the, of, of death. But before you move to the resurrection and to, 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 to Easter Sunday, if you will, you, you talk for a while about how difficult this is. I never really thought about it, but my guess is that he's probably right. 
And the reason I think why I do that is because I have grown weary of hearing funeral sermons that jump too quickly to the resurrection. Because we're talking about the resurrection, and as you look out, you can see that there are people whose souls are troubled, who are, whose lives have been tossed by storms, who are depressed. And if you move too quickly to the resurrection, you end up not taking not just their pain seriously, but Jesus seriously enough. David Bartlett says, For many Christians who face suffering and loss, there is more comfort in the suffering, in this suffering and pondering Jesus, than in a superhero programmed for perfection. I think if we follow Jesus and we believe that we follow all parts of him, then that means that we don't just follow the resurrection part. We don't just follow the miracles. We follow him into the dark places where he has gone as well. And we do so because we each know, if we are honest about it, that there are times when we are in the midst of those dark places and we need to know that in those moments, Jesus meets us there. Jesus understood, of course, that it is out of that willingness to endure this pain and death and suffering rather than avoiding it or acting as if it's not there. It is only in that place that we then can have new life. Only then that we can be a new creation. This is what we believe. This is the most basic tenet of our faith in Jesus Christ that almost kind of echoing the natural world as Jesus saw when a seed dies, more fruit are produced, that Jesus understood that if he died, that he took with him our brokenness, our sin, our struggling, our pain, so that then we could have new life. As Paul says, the old life has gone and a new life is begun. However, we cannot forget that that cost Jesus something. That it took his willingness to take our pain and our struggle and our sin upon him. We have talked about grace throughout this series, that it is a generous and free gift, and that is absolutely true. But what we cannot forget is that that free and generous gift cost Jesus his very life, a cost that we see in our passage this morning. He has carried our burden. In a few minutes, not yet, but in a few minutes, we will gather around this table. And why do we gather around the table once a month? Well, for lots of reasons. One of them simply because Jesus told us to. That's usually a good enough reason in and of itself. Secondly, of course, we do it because we do it out of gratitude for what God has done for us. We do it out of gratitude for the resurrection of how our lives have changed. But I wonder if we consider that we also do it 
Because of the fact that when we gather around this table, we are being reminded of the reality of pain and suffering and death. We are a resurrection people, but here's what you know. By very definition, if you have been resurrected, it means that you were once dead. And so we come and we gather around this table, not just to celebrate what Jesus has done, that Jesus has been raised, but in order to recognize the pain that has allowed for our new life. I'm not sure how much we think about that. If that weren't the case, if Jesus didn't want us to grapple with the pain and struggle and sacrifice of death, guess what? He would have told us, I'd like for you once a month, if you could, take about 10 minutes or so and look at an empty cross. Just stare at it for 10 minutes. But Jesus doesn't ask us to do that. What he asks us to do is to take off broken pieces of bread which signify his broken body. And he asks us to drink out of crushed grapes that look like blood because it symbolizes the blood that he has spilled for us. You see, each and every month when we gather around at this table, we are not just celebrating the resurrection, we are wrestling with the pain and agony of death. And I don't know if you think about this very much, but every time we get together as we wrestle with that, it should actually be shaping us, not into just a more grateful people, but into a people who are not afraid to tackle and wrestle death. It should actually, every month, help us to become a more compassionate people. There is no place else around, it seems to me, in our society where they encourage you to eat death. And we do this. And in so doing, we should then be able to be there for others who are wrestling with it. Why? Because we know the pain and the struggle. It allows us to then be able to reach out to those who are also struggling with pain and with loss. Jesus also says something else that to me is somewhat troubling, which is that he tells the disciples that whoever serves me must follow In other words, whoever wants to really know me and follow me must also die as I have, as I will, in order to live again. There is a pattern here that Jesus is beginning, that those who follow him are called to follow, which is a simple pattern of death, and that new life only coming when you have been willing to die. I'm not sure how much I thought about this during our second part of our True North series as we've talked about the ways that we reflect the grace of God through worship or chewing on Scripture or biblical community or generosity. 
But one of the things that dawned on me this week in the midst of all this conversation of death is that the only way for us to really be able to do those things, the only way for us to really have new life in any of those things is if we are willing first to die to something else. We don't really like that. The truth is, we just want to add. This is the struggle with diets, right? You know, we may have an image. This is, this is I just saw a picture about two weeks ago of myself in college. Man, I look good. And I think, this is what I want. And so I, I spend a few weeks saying, this is what I want, but I just try to add a couple more minutes of exercise while I continue to eat the donuts, and I wonder why I'm not seeing any change. Why is there no new life, new creation? Because most of us just want to add something else without dying to something. So when we talk about gathering for worship, as we did several weeks ago now, we say, well, what is worship? Where it's very simple. You're praising God. You're saying God's in control. God's at the center. But the thing is, you can't do that and worship yourself and say that you are also kind of at the center, that you are also kind of in control. The only way to do it, the only way to genuinely worship God and have new life in that is if you are willing to die to yourself. Or what about chewing on Scripture? It's been great to see how many people have taken kind of the Lenten challenge, if you will, of reading through the Gospels. I'm deeply appreciative of that and of Scott Shelton for leading that. And when I first kind of started thinking about this, I thought, well, how great. And I think I even typed in the words that they, you know, that they discovered time to do that. That's wonderful. Here's the thing. They didn't discover time to do that reading. This may surprise you, but when they decided to do this, they were not given 24 hours and 15 minutes each day. They had the same amount of time. What they had to decide was, am I going to die to how I want to spend this 15 minutes so that I could actually read the Scripture? That's the only way it happens. And if you actually then want to follow the Scripture and the narrative of Scripture and to see things through that lens, it means you have to die to how you have been seeing the world, to how you understand others, yourself, your neighbor, and your enemy. It will only happen when one of those things is willing to die. Or what about generosity? Right? If I were to sit down and ask each of you, okay, hey, would you like to be more generous? Everyone, I would imagine, is going to say, absolutely, we'd love to be more generous. Who doesn't want to do this? Just give me some extra money and I'll be generous as heck. We want to be more generous. We want to give more. But... The only way to be more generous is for you to decide that you are going to die to the generosity that you have upon yourself. Whether that's one less Starbucks coffee, whether that's a vacation that isn't quite as nice, whether that's staying in a house that may be a little bit smaller than what you could have had, any of those things. But you have to die to that. We cannot be generous without dying to something else. Or what about biblical community? Oh, it's a beautiful thought, isn't it? 
We all love it. We talked about it last week. Acts 2, 42 through 47. It couldn't get any better than that. And if I were to say to you, who wants to live in that kind of great little biblical community where everyone's just kind of giving and loving and sharing? Everyone says, oh, absolutely. Everyone wants that. You know what else they want? Whatever they want. The only way to have real biblical community is for you to die to something else that you specifically want. I see this with my children all the time, with my four girls. They love familial community. They love sisterhood. I mean, I tell you what, there are moments when they are playing and laughing and hugging and holding hands. Man, those 27 or 8 seconds are amazing. Then, and 99.8% of the time, this is what it is. They will see a toy or a costume that they both want. And just like that, community means nothing. And they are fighting, and they are punching, and they are crying, and they are tattletaling, and they are doing anything they can. And guess what? Until they are willing to begin dying to that particular need, they will never be back in relationship of wonderful, beautiful community. But it will only happen when one of them is willing to die to herself. We think that these things should be easy. But tell me this, when has death ever been easy? When has death ever come without a cost, without a sacrifice? A kind of faith that tells you that you can have it all is not a real faith. It is an American fairy tale. Because what Jesus says here from the very beginning is that A seed must die, that more fruit might be produced. As I was thinking about this sermon this week, and I thought, you know what, my guess is there might be some who, after I preach this subject of death, who may be wondering, I think these funerals may be taking a toll on Jerry. I hear it from time to time. People will come up to me and they will ask. They will say, Jerry, you know, how, how are you doing? And I want you to know first and foremost how appreciative I am of that. I talk to congregations or pastors, I should say, with some regularity. And, and it is not the case that congregations are always concerned about how their pastor is doing personally. And so I want to thank you for that. Which, by the way, is three compliments in three weeks. This is my Lenten practice. The initial thought that I always have in the midst of that is, is I want to kind of slow it. I say, well, we should really be concerned about the family and about the friends. And without question, it is the family and the friends who struggle the most. Without question. But I also this week, I realized, truth be told, Burying all people, but especially burying the young, it takes a toll.
But I want you to know that I'm actually thankful for that. In fact, my hope and my prayer is that it's taken a toll on all of us. Because then that means that we're actually wrestling with death. Then that means that we're actually feeling the pain and the struggle of death. Rather than sloughing it off or ignoring it or saying a couple of niceties, that we have, all of us, in one way or another, been grieved by them. Because in so doing, it seems to me, we have walked the road that Jesus has led us on. Death is a critical part of our world that helps to lead us to new life. We want to see Jesus, the Greeks said to Philip. Jesus said, then come and die with me, because only then will you truly see me. Perhaps it's not just such a strange answer after all. Perhaps the question that we are left to ponder is, are we willing to follow him there? We follow him there this morning. As we come to the table, the table that he has told us to come to, table that recognizes and symbolizes his body, his struggle, his troubled soul. And we do so, we eat and we drink of this so that we might wrestle with death, knowing that only in so doing will we ever experience new So I remind you, sisters and brothers in Christ, that the invitation to the Lord's table is open to all those who believe. It's not a right conferred upon the worthy. It is a privilege given to the undeserving. Even those this morning who are struggling, those whose souls might be storm-tossed, who may be depressed, who may be doubting, whose trust may be wavering. You can come and eat of this bread and drink of this cup and be assured of God's grace and love in Jesus Christ. Let us pray. God, I pray that your spirit would come upon this bread and this cup, that it might enliven us to the ways in which we also are called to death, so that in you we might have new life. It's in your name we pray. Amen.